Well, if you've ever had to do any public speaking where you had to develop your own talk, you had to come up with your own content, chances are pretty good that at some point you had to go looking for something called uh, an illustration, right? And we kind of all get what an illustration is. It's usually a story or uh, a metaphor that you use to look at a truth in a different way or maybe to have the, the weight of, a, of an abstract truth really settle in. You know, because some truths and, and, and some facts about life are kind of abstract, they're kind of hard to digest, they're sort of heavy. And sometimes a good illustration will give us handles for that, where we can really sort of lift and approach that heavy truth. And for me, illustrations are, are one of my favorite things. I've grown up as a pastor's son and hearing pastors all across the country. I've sort of collected a, um, a library of them over the years. And uh, when I listen to a good talk, I always listen for the illustrations. I learn well that way. A good illustration gives me a new window or a new perspective or a new view on a difficult truth. So if, if you're a person like me who loves a good illustration, then that bodes well for you because God loves to teach with illustrations. If you look at the New Testament and the Gospels, Jesus often taught with something we call a parable, which is a story that communicates a heavenly truth, or sometimes he would even give someone a concrete example, and some, a metaphor. He would, he would look down at a flower and say, look at this flower and how well it's dressed. He says, it doesn't worry about its wardrobe, and yet Solomon in all his glory was not as finely dressed as this flower is. So he would use different illustrations to teach with. But the story that we're gonna talk about today is a totally different kind of illustration. When, you get, when you're reading in the Old Testament, this is a time period where Jesus has not come to earth yet. He's not died on the cross. So there is a lot of God's salvation plan or, or God's rescue plan for human beings that's, that's still not quite clear. And yet there are some real life stories that play out in the Old Testament that are absolutely undeniably illustrations of what God is gonna do later. There's a whole theology behind this called types. But basically what it is is God has allowed a real life story to play out before Jesus comes to earth and dies on the cross that in some way illustrates what God is trying to do later in this planet. So that's the kind of story we're gonna talk about. Sometimes I bring a talk and, and, and I have two or three illustrations, you know, one at this point in the message, one at this point in the message. Today it is one giant illustration. It's in the Old Testament. It's a real story. But what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at what this story has to teach us about our relationship with God. This story is a personal story about you and God. Yes, it's a story about King David and a guy named Mephibosheth, but it's way bigger than that. It's a story about you and God. And so quickly, I just want to introduce you to King David, if that's, a, if that's a new idea for you, if maybe you're kind of new to church, new to the Bible, who is this King David guy? Well, David was a king of Israel. He was the second king of Israel. Uh, the first king of Israel, his name was Saul. We talked about him a few weeks ago. When I think of Saul, I think of a very tall Richard Nixon. Right? Because he was brilliant. I mean, he was, a, he was a brilliant political leader. He had a lot going for him. People around him really thought, this is somebody. This is a person who really has something special. And yet he was pessimistic. He was paranoid. And he was not above breaking a few rules in order to save his own hide. And unfortunately, it was Saul's breaking of the rules that messed up his future and the future of his family. God said, because you haven't done what I asked you to do, you are not going to be the head of the royal family anymore. In fact, I'm going to take the kingship of Israel away from your family, and I'm going to give it to somebody else. So what happens is this massive shift from one royal family to another. And sometimes 
Bible stories and Bible facts start to blend together. Even if you've grown up in church and you've heard these stories, sometimes they start to compact in our mind and we forget how many things happened between this story and this story. So sometimes we know that David followed King Saul as king, almost like it almost feels like God said to Saul, okay, you messed up, Friday's your last day. Bring a box, pack your stuff up, you're leaving, you're done, it's over. You know, golden parachute, have a nice day. Right? And then David shows up the next day to be king. Doesn't work that way. Saul's king for his entire life. He gets killed in a brutal battle. And after that, Israel goes into chaos. There's nobody really sure who should be the next king. A lot of Saul's family were killed off in the battle. There's a lot of questions. Israel is just in a place where everybody's terrified because these other armies are, are encroaching. On, I mean, they are besieged by armies from every side. And the kingdom sort of splits up. But God has anointed David. David is supposed to be the new king. This is the person that God has decided is going to be the next king. And the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. He was an exceptional person. He made some huge mistakes in his life. And yet, he was a person who really sought God out and wanted to be a king after God's heart. So David was a special person. God has selected David to be king. And through God's anointing on his life, he inch by inch, step by step, gets the authority and the respect of the people of Israel so that first he becomes king of Judah and then shortly thereafter, he becomes king of the entire nation. The country comes together. They start getting uh, victory over their enemies and there is now a time of peace. David is now the king, and everybody can take a deep breath. Things are calming down. It's not so chaotic. And that's where we find the story that we're looking at in the scripture today. Now, if you're David, and you're now the king, your family line is the royal family, you've got one little pesky problem that you got to deal with. And this has been the case, this isn't just about David, this has been the case through all of world history when this happens. I mean, this has happened multiple times. We have one royal family who somehow loses the throne, now there's a new royal family. Whenever that happens, if you're the new king, if you're the first new king, you've got to worry about, is there anybody left from the old royal family? Because if there is, then that person poses a threat to you, and you got to do something with them. In the ancient world, the benevolent thing to do was to banish them. Get them as far away as you possibly can. Doesn't sound very nice, but that was the nicer of the two options because the other option was you hire a squad of assassins who go out and kill whoever's left from the old family. Right? So it's not surprising when we get to 2 Samuel chapter 9 that David is asking, is there anybody left from Saul's family? We expect him to do that. What is unexpected is why he's asking. Check this out. 2 Samuel chapter 9, David asks, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? That makes sense, but check this out. Is this not whiplash? Anyone to whom I can show kindness... David, for some reason, wasn't worried about being threatened by the old royal family. David wanted to do something nice for the old royal family, and not just something nice. It's beyond that. The word that, that comes across into our scripture is, is kindness there. It comes from a Hebrew word. Hebrew scholars tell us that this word means kindness, the kind of kindness that God shows. Right? Well, now that's an awkward phrase construction. And if you were to put that in the sentence, it would make it very difficult to read. So the translators don't do that. And yet that is exactly what it means. David is saying, is there anybody left in Saul's family to whom I can show kindness, the kind of kindness that God shows? So he wasn't just saying, is there somebody for whom I can be polite? Is there somebody for whom I can make a gesture? We can put it in the paper so people can recognize I'm a good guy. Is there, is there something, is there, can I throw a bone to the old royal family? He's saying, I want to find out, is there anybody left from Saul's family because I want to show them the kind of kindness God shows me. That's a big deal. 
So right off the bat, from, from, from verse one of this story, if we're looking at this as an illustration and we're trying to think, how does this relate to my relationship with God, then the first thing that we notice in this story is that there is a king looking for an opportunity to redeem. Redeem, that's not a word we use real often. I mean, some of you work in occupations where that word is used. In real estate, sometimes the word redeem is used and that sort of thing. But, but when the Bible talks about redemption, redeeming means to bring back value where value has been lost. See, David and Saul, they used to be connected. They used to have a relationship. David first started serving Saul in Saul's court. He played in Saul's court as a musician. Whenever Saul was having a bad day, David would would play music for him and it would calm him down. And then David ended up being a warrior for Saul, fighting military battles for him. David ended up marrying Saul's daughter, something that sometimes we forget. David was the son-in-law of Saul. There was a connection. There was a bond. But then Saul went off the rails and he was paranoid and crazy and he started trying to kill David. And there was a breakup in the relationship. There was a devaluing of the relationship. Now there is peace. David is king. He's now in a place where he can bring value back where value has been lost. He wants to redeem. He wants to close the gap. He wants to once again be connected with Saul's family. I say that because for some of us in this room, we struggle with what, what does God want with me? You know? Because I talk to people who sort of have this idea in their head that God is some sort of cosmic figure walking around with some sort of heavenly fly swatter waiting for them to enter his eye line so he can smash them like a bug, you know? Or that God wants to make them feel bad about themselves or that God wants to put them down. You have to understand that where God stands in in relationship to you, his attitude towards you is he is a king looking for an opportunity to redeem, to bring value back where value is lost. When our original parents, Adam and Eve, sinned in the Garden of Eden, there was a disconnection. There was a breakup in our relationship with God. There was a devaluing of that relationship. But ever since that moment, God has been about finding ways to redeem, to bring value back where value is lost and to close the gap between us and him. So yes, right off the bat, we notice there's a king looking for an opportunity to redeem. That is God's attitude toward you. So he decides he's going to find somebody who knows about Saul's family. He brings in this fellow named Ziba, who had been a servant in Saul's house. And he asked him, is anybody still alive from Saul's family? If, if so, I want to show God's kindness. Remember, kindness, the kind that God shows. I want to show God's kindness to them. And Ziba replied, yes, actually, one of Jonathan's sons is alive, but, um, but David, there's something you probably ought to know. He's, uh, he's defective. He's broken. He's a cripple. Now, I don't know exactly what Ziba was trying to communicate. Maybe he was just trying to communicate facts here. I don't know. But I do know this. David and, and Ziba are having this conversation in a beautiful place, in a beautiful palace with beautiful finishes, beautiful accoutrements, beautiful people, traditions, customs. I, I, I can't help but think that Ziba was trying to say, David, uh, there is somebody left in Saul's family, but he doesn't, nobody like him belongs in a place like this. A, a broken person like him doesn't belong in a beautiful place like this. You should probably just leave him where he is. And he's the only one left anyway. He's crippled in both his feet. How did that happen? How did he become crippled? Well, we see this if we, if we turn back about five chapters and we go to 2 Samuel chapter 4. The Bible said that Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth <clears throat> who was crippled as a child. Someone in this room right now, you read this verse and you, man, immediately it connects for you. 
Because just, just like Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth was born into a, a, a situation of high potential. He was in the family line of the king. He, he was in the direct royal line. He, people looked at him and said, this little, when this baby was born, they, they said, this kid is going to be somebody. He had potential. And yet, when he was a kid, something happened. And from that moment on, he was broken. And I, I just have to think that there's somebody in this room who would say, I have never been who I thought I could be. And I don't think I will ever be who I believe I could be because when I was a kid, something happened to me. And ever since then, I've been broken. Happened for Mephibosheth when he was five years old. The Bible says when he was five, a report came from Jezreel that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle. Can you imagine being five and hearing that your dad and your grandpa were just brutally murdered in a battle? When the child's nurse heard the news, she picked him up and fled. But as she hurried away, she dropped him. Maybe it happened when you were a kid. Maybe it happened two months ago. But somebody you should have been able to count on dropped you. Maybe it was a spouse. And when you stood at the altar and there was that moment where the vows were exchanged, you thought they would always be there for you. You thought they would always have your back. You thought they would guard the sanctity of your marriage. You trusted them and then they dropped you. And since then you've been broken. Maybe it was a parent who dropped you. Maybe it was a boss. Maybe it was a job. Maybe it was a traumatic situation that nobody could have avoided, and yet you were dropped, and ever since then, when you look at yourself, all you see is brokenness. If that's your story, then you and Mephibosheth have something in common. She dropped him, and he became crippled. So yes, from David's perspective, there is a king looking for the opportunity to redeem, but from Mephibosheth's perspective... There is a person with a past he can't change, and now he has a problem he can't fix. Who am I talking to today? <clears throat> that if, if you were given one wish, you could have anything that you wanted, you wouldn't wish for money, you wouldn't wish for a, a big mansion of a house. You wouldn't wish for a different job. What you would wish for is to be able to go back in your life and unlive a certain moment or unlive a relationship or unlive a choice that you made, but you can't unlive it because it happened. And ever since then, it's been a part of your reality. And you have a past you can't change. Now you got a problem you can't fix. Maybe you made a financial decision when you were 20 and now you're 50 and it's still a big part of your life. You can't get out from under it. Maybe you made a, a decision in, in the middle of a dysfunctional relationship moment and now you're still in the middle of relationship dysfunction because of what happened back then. Or, or, or maybe you stepped outside the law and since that's happened, there's been a brand, a mark on every job application, on every bio that says this is something in your past. You can't change it. You can't go back and undo it. And now you've got a problem you can't fix. Mephibosheth can't go back to when he was five years old and be undropped. So there is a king looking for an opportunity to redeem, but there is a person with a past he can't change and a problem he can't fix. So let me ask you a question. If that's where you are, if, if, you're, if you, when you look in the mirror, if all you see is brokenness and you know you can't fix it, where, where do you go? Where does a person like that exist? Well, that's what David wanted to know. He asks this Ziba guy, he says, well, where is he? Where is, where is the son of Jonathan's? And Ziba answered, he is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel. 
in Lodabar. Names are important in the Bible. They have significance. A lot of times a name will, will describe a person, but almost always a name describes a place. So we have places that are described, to, places that have a name that describe the face of a mountain or places that are named to describe the topography of a forest. But in this case, Lodabar is named to describe the emotion of the place because the word Lodabar means the place where there are no words. Mephibosheth was broken. Somebody dropped him. From then on, you look in the mirror, all you see is brokenness. And so now he's a person with a past he can't change, a problem he can't fix, and now he has gone to live in a place of defeat that words can't describe. Every once in a while, my wife, who works alongside me in couples ministry here at New Spring, she'll get a, a phone call from a lady trying to make an appointment for her husband. Wants her husband to come in and talk to me. She wants to set up an appointment for her husband to meet with me. And I'm always a little skittish about that because I have had some of these circumstances where a wife sort of drops her husband off at my doorstep and says, fix him. <laughs> Those are always fun appointments, you know. <clears throat> But this is a wholly different situation. This is completely separate from that. Because a lady will call my wife and say, would, would Jonathan meet with my husband? Because my husband is in a dark season. He's going through a difficult time. He's sort of disconnected and detached. I don't know what to do with him. But I think he would talk to Jonathan. And so my wife sets up the appointment. The guy comes in. He sits down on the couch across from me. And I smile at him. And I get sort of a half smile from him. And I say to him, so what would you like for us to talk about today? And he says, I don't know. I say, okay. Well, why do you think you're here today? I don't know. All right. Well, we have an hour together. Uh, what would you like for us to do with our hour? I don't know. Maybe we're making this too hard. Let's back up a little bit. I'd just like to hear from you a little bit about what it's like to be you right now. Would you tell me a little bit about what it's like to be you right now? You know what they say to me? I don't know. You know that's the hardest thing I ever have to deal with? And what I do, call it pastoral coaching, pastoral counseling, whatever you want to call it, the hardest thing that I deal with is defeat. Because that person is saying it wouldn't even matter. The, the script of defeat is there is no point. There's no point. We could talk, Jonathan, about all this stuff, but there's no point. Why would I try to do something about my finances? Look at me, I'm broken. Why would I try to do something about my marriage? Look at me, I'm broken. Why would I try to do something to reestablish the relationship with my kids? Would you take a look at me? I'm obviously broken. For Pete's sake, leave me alone. Let me numb out. Let me go to the place where there are no words, because that's where I live. The problem about living in Lodabar is at first you live in Lodabar, but eventually Lodabar starts living in you and you become a person that doesn't communicate what's really in your heart because there just aren't any words. Oh, you can turn it on for family. You can turn it on for friends. You can be on at work. You can be engaging. You can talk. You can do all that stuff. But you know that when you're by yourself and you're thinking about your life and when you're looking in the mirror and you're seeing your brokenness, you go to a place where there are no words. There's a place of defeat that words can't describe. You know the interesting thing about the story is that David 
immediately tries to do something to get him out of Lodabar. David does not want Mephibosheth living in Lodabar. And David here is a, is a picture of God. You have to understand that if you today are living in a place where there are no words, and that is part of your life, you have to understand that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords does not want you living in Lodabar. That is not what he has for you. And by the way, Lodabar is a very uncomfortable place to live. So here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that David had him brought, had Mephibosheth brought from Lodabar. Now you say, Jonathan, those are <clears throat> three we- uh, weird words to highlight in that passage. Trust me, they're the most important words in that scripture. Had him brought. Please listen. If you're living in Lodabar and you need out, the only way you're getting out is to be carried out. Nobody walks out of Lodabar. Heard a pastor preach on this some years ago. He said something that stayed with me. I've never been able to, to, to forget this. He said, no grown man wants to be carried. You think about that, guys. I see it in the room. I see the light bulbs coming on. Guys are imagining this. As a grown man, to have somebody come and scoop you up in their arms and carry you from one place to another, that is not something that we want. That is not something that we're in on. We, that feels weak, and it feels vulnerable, and we're not up for that. I'm not trying to say it's only a guy thing. This is an adult thing, but it's especially a guy thing. You know, you're out playing football with your friends. You jump up to catch a pass, and when you land, your body lands one direction, and your leg lands the other, you know? And it is clear to everybody around you that your leg is broken, right? And so your friends call the ambulance, and they say, listen, the ambulance is going to come up to the parking lot. We're going to carry you off the field and carry you over to where the ambulance is. And there you are. You've got a torn muscle, and your bone is broken in two places, and you tell your friends, I'm fine. I'll walk it off. (laughs) We don't want to be carried. And that's natural. That's normal. But any doctor who's in this room today will tell you, you cannot walk off broken. There are some things you can walk off, but you can't walk off broken. See, I say that because, can I tell you for a second what I see sometimes? And I hope I can do this without stepping on anybody's toes. I'm going to tell you what I see every once in a while. I see somebody who's been living in Lodabar for a long time. They're crippled and they're broken and they can't, they, they haven't felt like they could ever get close to God, so they haven't ever tried. They've not been a person who goes to church. They've not been a person who seeks out God. But they have something happen in their life. Maybe they, maybe they have somebody cross their path who's a Christian, or, or something happens, and it starts to stir up in them the feeling that they don't want to be in Lodabar anymore. Like I said, it's an uncomfortable place to live, and they want to be with God. And so they do everything they can, crippled as they are, to try to stand up, and they sort of puff out their chest and convince themselves that they are going to walk out of Lodabar, and they're going to walk to the palace. You know how they convince themselves that they're going to be able to walk? They start going to church. Freaks their family out. Never thought she would darken the door of a face of church anymore. I never thought he would ever go to church anymore. That's so strange. It's so weird. They go to the Christian bookstore. They buy devotional books. They join a life team. They join a Bible study. They start talking about God all the time. Wigs the family out. What is up with this person? I mean, they're happy for him, but it makes no sense. This is not what this person has been like this whole time. But all these things that that person is doing is an attempt to convince themselves that they have sufficiently bolstered themselves to get to the palace on their own. They are not about to be carried. But there's always the fizzle that happens the first time they try to take a step and they collapse. And then you know what I've seen so many times? Then they get mad. 
They get angry. Church, just a place full of hypocrites. It didn't get me there. Those devotional books, what a crock. It's just a big industry. It didn't get me there. The life team, those people didn't really care about me. It didn't get me there. And you know what I want to do? I want to tell that person in love, I want to tell them, the problem is not that the church didn't get you to the palace. The problem is that the devotional book didn't get you to the palace. The problem isn't that your life team didn't get you to the palace. The problem is you were determined to walk and you can't. You're broken. At some point, you're going to have to determine whether or not you're willing to be carried out. Because that's the only way anybody gets out. Can I show you a verse that I've sometimes struggled with in the Gospels? I'm going to take you to Matthew. This is, this is Jesus teaching. He brings a little kid into the group where he's teaching, and, and he says, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Has that verse ever kind of confused you a little bit? I mean, what is Jesus saying? What, what element of childhood am I supposed to embrace? What, what, what does it mean to change, to become like a child? What, what is he trying to communicate here? For the first time, it really started to sink into my cortex as I was studying for this talk because I was thinking about the difference between an adult and a child. If an adult needs to get from point A to point B, but there is some insufficiency in themselves to keep them from getting to point B or some barrier between them, that adult will concentrate and try to figure out how can I overcome the barrier? How can I strengthen myself? How can I get to the point where somehow I can get from point A to point B? But a small child doesn't think that way. A small child who realizes that they are not big enough and able to get from point A to point B will go to the nearest adult that he or she trusts and they will do this. Right? Because a child not only is okay with being carried, please get this, a child recognizes the necessity of being carried. A child comes and does this because the child is basically saying, if you don't pick me up and take me there, I'm not going to get there. If you don't pick me up and carry me, I'm stuck where I am. And until a person is willing to come to God and say, God, if you don't pick me up and carry me from where I am to where you are, I'm never going to get there. I'm just going to be stuck where I am. So, on the one hand, I have to tell you, if you're feeling like you're never going to be at a place where you feel comfortable being carried, I have to tell you, you're going to feel blocked. It's not the church's fault. It's not people who love you's fault. It's not the Christian books. It's not the Christian radio. It's not the preacher's fault. The thing that's going to change your world is when you're finally ready to reach out to the Savior of the universe and say, all right, go ahead, pick me up. I'm willing to admit that I'm weak enough to need this. But if you get there, if you get there, the story tells us that there is an offer to be carried out. So you don't just need a willingness to be carried. You need somebody who is willing to pick you up. You see the artist depictions of Jesus Christ on the cross or the, or the sculptures of Jesus on the cross. He's got nails through his hands and through his feet, hanging there suspended between heaven and earth as if he was fit for neither, paying the worst kind of criminal's death anybody's ever dreamed up. You have to understand that what you are seeing is the outstretched arms of a Savior who is saying, I will pick you up and carry you if you'll let me. There's an offer to be carried out. So Mephibosheth gets to the palace. They have this moment where they meet, and David says, 
don't be afraid. I'm not here to squash you like a bug. I'm not here to punish you. I'm not here to make fun of your brokenness. I'm not here to put you down. Actually, I'm here to show you kindness. And he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul. That actually belonged to David as the spoils of being the new king. He's giving it back. He's giving Mephibosheth back all the land that, that Saul owned. Now, now, that's important. Those first three lines are important, but I, I hope you understand these last two lines are way more important because he says, and you will always eat at my table. What did he mean by that? You will eat at my table. We're not real picky about necessarily who eats it. We don't have big traditions about who eats at our table. We'll share a table with somebody at Wendy's, or a hamburger. There's no seats, so we'll sit at a table with somebody at Wendy's, but this is a whole different deal. In the ancient world, the king's table had a special symbolism. Because it belonged, it was, the people who belonged at the king's table were the king and the king's sons. They were the fixtures. They were the ones who always ate at the king's table. Every once in a while, somebody that the king wanted to honor would come and sit at the king's table. But if you were fortunate, that might happen to you once or twice or maybe three times in your life if you were an exceptional person, an exceptional advisor to the king. But you would never be a fixture at the king's table because the only people who belonged there, that that was their regular seat, that they were supposed to be there every day, were the king and the king's sons. And David is saying, you will belong at the king's table, you're going to be a fixture. In essence, he was saying, basically, Mephibosheth, consider yourself adopted. I'm just saying that because this is what God wants to do for you. He wants to give you a seat at the king's table. He wants you to know that you belong there, that you are a fixture with him. You say, well, I'm broken. Yeah, broken, but you still belong. Because if the king says you belong, then you belong. There's a promise of undeserved restoration. Here's the thing. So many of us dream of being restored in life. We've lost a lot of things. We've been through a lot of things. We dream of being restored. But can I just tell you, the only way restoration is ever going to happen is if somebody gives it to you when you don't deserve it. And this is exactly what happened for Mephibosheth. He dreamed of restoration, but the only way he's going to get it is if he doesn't deserve it. And that is the message of grace. That is the message that, that people come to New Spring and they, they grab onto. But there is a flip side of that. It's sometimes difficult to accept. It is, it is wonderful to come to, but difficult to stay with. Because I'll show you what happens with Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth says, he, he bows down, and I want you to pay attention to the fact that he bows down. And he says, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? How is it that a person who comes to faith in God some years ago, maybe as a child, decades of faith, they believed God and they've listened to the preaching about God and they've learned about God and they've gone to the Bible studies and they understand that they are an adopted child of the King of Kings and that is part of, of the, the theological reality of their life. But when it comes down to the practical reality of their life, they don't feel it, they don't live it, and it's not something that they feel like they can really digest and accept. They regularly feel unworthy. And because they feel unworthy, they don't know how to handle what God is trying to give to them. Mephibosheth said, why would you notice a dead dog like me? By the way, would you notice here that he's bowed down? Now, I don't know if Mephibosheth has got crutches. I don't know exactly what his position is. But I know that he's bowed down. Now, let me ask you something. If, if, you're, if you're in a bowed posture, what are you staring at? Your feet. You're staring at your feet. See, Mephibosheth could hear what David was saying. He heard what the heart of the king is, that the king wanted to do this for him. 
but all he could see were his broken feet. And when he looked at his broken feet, he said, I'm just not worthy of what I'm being given. And he almost tries to negotiate with David. Why would you do this for a dead dog like me? Maybe if you were to give me a little less. Maybe if you just put me up in a little apartment. Maybe if you invited me out on a holiday or whatever. Maybe I could work myself up to feeling worthy of that. But what you are offering me, I will never be able to work myself up to feeling worthy of that. Why? Well, mainly because even though I know you want to do something for me, I can't get over the brokenness that will always be a part of my life. And if you were in that room, you would want to go over and lift Mephibosheth's chin up about six inches so he could look into the eyes of David and recognize that it was not about his brokenness, but it was about what the king wanted to do for him. How do I know that? Well, check out how David responds. He doesn't even say anything back to Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth's struggling with this doubt of brokenness that you and I struggle with, and we come to God, and we're like, God, how could I possibly work myself up to feeling worthy of what it is that you're trying to give me? And David's, David responds, he talks to Ziba. He doesn't even respond to Mephibosheth. And he says, check this out. I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and, and your servants are to farm the land for him so that he'll be provided for. And Mephibosheth will always eat at my table. Do you kind of get the feeling of what David is saying? This is not a conversation. This is, this is not a negotiation. I am not going to back off on the blessings that I want to give him just because he doesn't feel worthy of them. That's not going to happen because this is not about whether or not he's worthy. This is about what I want to do for him. Some of us struggling with the doubt that comes from staring at our own brokenness. You know, raise our chin up six inches and look into the eyes of a savior who's saying, it's really, the most important thing here is really not your brokenness. The most important thing here is what I want to do for you. So the Bible says Mephibosheth ate at David's table just like one of the King's sons. And as a matter of fact, the Bible sort of summarizes the story for us. Um, it says, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both his feet. Does that sentence seem strange to you? The construction of it? My grammar friends in the room? He always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both of his feet. Why put those things right up next to each other like that? Why that juxtaposition? Well, I think it's because the main truth that I think God wants us to get today about this illustration, we're thinking about my relationship with God, your relationship with God, and what this story can tell us. I think the main truth that God wants us to really get into our groundwater is that there is a place at the king's table for a broken person. You say, but I'm so not perfect. I'm so far from perfect. That's okay. There's a place at the king's table for a broken person. But if God only knew what I've done, he does. And there's a place at the king's table for a broken person. If God only knew the stuff that I've messed up, he does. And yet there's an invitation to be carried out and placed at the king's table, to be treated as one of the king's sons, to be adopted into God's family. You don't have to be put together to come to God. As a matter of fact, if you did, then nobody would be able to. Nobody walks out of Lodabar. We all have to be carried there's a place at the king's table for a broken person. Can I, can I do this quickly? We're, we're almost up against time, but I want to talk to my fellow analytic type in the room. Right? I'm, I'm sort of an analytic type. I'm, I'm, I'm a skeptic by nature. Sometimes I read the Bible that way, probably more so than I should. Um, 
But maybe one of my fellow skeptics is in the room to say, Jonathan, you're shoehorning my relationship with God into the framework of an Old Testament story. How do you know, how could you possibly know that this Old Testament story accurately reflects my relationship with God? I'm so glad you asked that question. I've been waiting for somebody to do that all morning. Let me show you a couple of passages. 2 Samuel chapter 14. Not too many chapters removed from the story that we've been in. God does not just sweep life away. God doesn't say, if you're broken, then you belong in Lodabar. That's where we sweep the broken people to. We sweep the broken people to Lodabar, a place where there are no words, a place out of sight, a place that is not beautiful. And we keep all the beautiful people in the beautiful place. Instead, he devises ways to bring us back when we have been separated from him. He devises ways to do what? To close the gap, to redeem. First and foremost, he did that by sending his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross to pay for the things that I've done wrong and the things that you've done wrong. But it goes beyond that because every single person in this room has a different story of how you've come to God, a different story of how you got to be in this room sitting in the seat that you're sitting in today. Don't you think that's a mistake? Everybody has an, the, an own group of circumstances that brought you here today and that was not an accident. God devises ways to bring us back when we've been separated from him. He devises ways to close the gap. Can I show you this from the New Testament? If you're saying, Jonathan, you've been in the Old Testament all morning. Okay, well, let's go over to the New Testament. Romans chapter 3. The Bible says everyone has sinned. What is sin? Don't let that take you to a pipe organ, stained glass kind of churchy place. The word sin just means anything that I do that puts distance between me and a holy God. Anything that I do that puts distance between me and a perfect God. The Bible says all of us have done something that has put distance between us and God. That's the best person you can think of. Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, we're all in the same soup as far as that's concerned. And as a result of that, we all fall. See, our first parents, Adam and Eve, dropped us. But ever since then, all the rest of us have done a pretty good job of falling on our own. And every time we fall, it adds to our brokenness. As a result, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. If you ever wondered how perfect does a person have to be to walk into the king's palace? How perfect does a person have to be to, to work their way into heaven, to get there on their own? Well, the Bible says that the standard is perfection, and that's something that not a one of us can achieve, not even the best person in this room. That would be a pretty depressing place to leave it, because at that point, nobody qualifies to have a relationship with God, except what we see in the next verse. Remember we said last week that two of the greatest words in the Bible are, but God. Check this out. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, does that sound familiar? Is there anyone to whom I can show kindness? What kind of kindness? The kind of kindness that God shows. God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous or right with God. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. All right, we're almost out of time, but just for a second, let's talk about what does it mean to declare something? To declare something means that you use all the authority that is vested in you to speak something into reality. See, I've performed a lot of weddings on this stage. And in a wedding, a bride and groom come up here and they both are asking for a change in the status of their relationship. When they walk up onto this stage, they are not married. 
They expect me at some point in the marriage to do some, or in the ceremony to do something called a pronouncement. And the pronouncement is the point in the ceremony where I declare that there has been a, a change of status in their relationship. When they came up, they were not married. When they walk down for the recessional, they now are married. Because of the authority that is vested in me by the state of Kansas, I have the power to speak a couple from not being married to being married. Some of y'all are gonna go to lunch after this and say, what did Jonathan speak about? I don't know, but he's on some sort of power trip about weddings. That's all I got, but. <laughs> what is this verse saying? This verse is saying that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, the Bible said his blood was a currency that paid for my sins and your sins. When Jesus died on the cross, he had done everything that was necessary to have the authority to speak into reality a change of status in our relationship. That at that moment, I could go from being disconnected from a perfect God to being connected to a perfect God. I can go from not belonging at the king's table to belonging at the king's table. I can go from not family to adopted and a, and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. I have the, the, the ability to approach God and say, God, will you pick me up and carry me? Will you take me out and make me your own? And God has the power to do it because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for our sins. Sometimes people say, what is this big thing? You guys are so hung up on Jesus. Jesus Christ and so hung, up, uh, so hung up on the cross. I'll tell you why, because it is only because he died on the cross that anybody has the authority to change my relationship from being uh, a person who is not right with God to being right with God. And, and Jesus has the power in, in that moment on the cross when he said, it is finished, it was as though he spoke into reality a change in the status of my relationship from being not with God to with God. And not just that, not just somebody who has a small apartment in the city and comes over on a holiday, I've been invited to sit at the king's table every single day so that no, no matter what people see in me, they see the brokenness and they might make fun and they might criticize, but the bottom line is I'm being treated like a son and a son is what I am. There's a place for you at the king's table. I don't know what your situation is. I don't know what your past is. I don't know where you've been. I don't know what you've done. But I know there's a place for you at the king's table. You say, Jonathan, I'm a broken person. Join the club. We all are. But God has a home and a place for broken people. Broken people is why he sent his son to die on the cross. If you want to be connected with God, there is nothing stopping you except for you to reach your arms out and say, I'm ready to be carried out. Could, could we bow our heads for just a moment? I know we're over time. Just a moment of prayer for a moment. Because there might be somebody in this room who would say, you know what, Jonathan, I am a believer in God. I have a relationship with him, but I keep not living it because I don't feel like I'm worthy. Maybe this is a moment for you to reach out to God and admit that you're not worthy and say, but I'm ready to hear what it is that you have for me, even in the middle of my unworthiness, because I'm ready to agree with you that it's not about my brokenness, it's about what you want to do for me. But I want to talk for a moment to the person in the room who would say, Jonathan, up until this moment, I've never felt ready to reach my arms out to the Savior and say, why don't you carry me because there is nothing I can do for myself. I'm never gonna walk out of this if you don't pick me up and carry me. If that's you, let's settle that before you leave. I'm gonna say the words to a very simple prayer. And if you want to, you can pray this to God. You don't need to say this out loud. You can say this silently in your heart to God if you want to, and it'll be settled. Here we go. Dear Jesus, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you died for me. I understand that I do wrong things. And I know I can't get to heaven on my own. 
So I'm asking you to carry me. I believe you rose again. I believe you have the power to make me God's child. Make me yours, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please look this way for just a minute. I know there's usually kind of a rush to hurry out, but, but briefly, if you just prayed that prayer with me, you just made the biggest decision in your life, and we don't wanna just leave you at that point. We wanna help you get started in your journey with God. Would you do me a favor? If you prayed with me, would you check the box in that card in front of you that says, I prayed to receive Christ? Take it to guest services. Let them give you some materials that will help you get started in your journey with Christ. Thank you so much for being here. We're looking forward to Clash of Dynasties.